Welcome to Aquafarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Aquafarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, we've got a couple, uh, a few, three, I think it's a few. We've got few, a few new drugs to talk about and one other uh, expanded approval uh, for uh, some drugs already approved. So let's just get right into it. The first thing we're going to talk about today is Brexcaptogene Autolucel, which is a CAR-T formulation approved for relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma on July 24th. Now, the brand name of this is Ticardis, or Ticardis, which is, you could say, is T-CAR-T-U-S. And this is from Kite Pharmaceuticals, uh, and some other big company bought them out. Uh, it's the same company that makes Yescarta, or AxiCell, for large-cell B-cell lymphoma. Now, both of these are CD19 targeting agents with, uh, I think, a uh, similar, at least maybe the same, at least a similar retroviral vector. But there are different manufacturing processes with regards to T-cell selection, because uh, for, uh, for mantle cell, you want to have some, uh, some activity in the, in, uh, the actual um, blood vessels versus the lymph nodes, or just the lymph nodes, from what I understand from looking at this, all right? Now, this is an accelerated approval based on Zuma 2 which was published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of this year. It's a phase two, ther- phase two uh, study. Everyone had to have prior treatment with an anthracycline, bendamustine, a CD20 monoclonal antibody, or a BTK inhibitor like a brutinib or a calibrutinib. Uh, 81% of patients had received at least three uh, lines of treatment or more. 43% had a prior autotransplant. Uh, now, 74 patients were enrolled, three of them with a manufacturing failure, never got the drug, uh, never had the drug prepared. Uh, remember the way that this the drug is prepared. It's a living drug, so to speak. So you actually have to get the patient's own, uh, their own uh, white blood cells, and they go to the manufacturing facility. They get cooked up uh, with their uh, chimeric CD19 antigen. Uh, so three more. So three didn't get that process done, completed. There was a manufacturing failure. Three more patients weren't given the drug. So 68 total uh, should be maybe our final efficacy analysis. But they say 60 is the primary efficacy analysis it doesn't make a huge difference when you look at the primary endpoint, which is overall response rate, 85% in the entire intent-to-treat cohort, 93% in that 60-patient primary efficacy analysis. Uh, So that's a CR rate of 59% or 67% if you look at uh, just those 60 patients in their primary efficacy analysis. So certainly uh, disease activity. You saw the typical CAR-T toxicity, cytokine release syndrome, and neurotoxicity, B-cell aplasia. Quote, two grade five infectious adverse events occurred which is another way of saying two people died from drug toxicity. Um, so this is a, a, you know, a nice, it's our third CAR-T approval now. All of them are CD19-directed uh, therapies. This one for, uh, for mantle cell lymphoma, which is the first CAR-T approved for mantle cell lymphoma. Now, the reported cost here is between a quarter million and a half million dollars. It's $373,000. To put that into just some perspective, the median U.S. home price, now this is per Zillow, is $226,800, which means you can uh, spend another $125,000 and buy a house that costs as much as a dose of Brexcaptogene Autolucel. All right? So sticking with the CD19 theme we're going with, the next approval is Tafacitamab, uh, uh, or Monjuvi is the brand name. This is also an accelerated approval with Linalidomide, linalidomide are in the market, but this approval is with linalidomide for relapse refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma in patients not eligible for an autotransplant. 
Uh, now, tefacitumab is a CD19 targeting monoclonal antibody that then leads to B cell uh, apoptosis and uh, antibody dependent cellular cytotoxicity or antibody dependent cellular phagocytosis. We're used to this when what we see with, say, rituximab. Uh, Speaking of rituximab, that targets CD20. So what's different about CD19 from CD20? Well, CD19 is more broadly expressed in all cells of B-cell origin. Uh, you know, early, late, all the way, including into plasma cell stage. Uh, of course, B-cells differentiate to plasma cells, and then the plasma cells become the antibody factories. CD20 develops later in the B-cell maturation. This is why not every ALL patient expresses CD20 and gets rituximab, say those early pre-B ALLs. And then CD20 is lost when B cells differentiate into plasma cells. So CD19 is more prevalent on uh, deranged B cells than CD20. Uh, now this is a humanized antibody, although you don't see the like UZ, like trastuzumab uh, in the name. It's tafacitumab, this S-I-T-A, cita is I think the first time that we see that in a monoclonal antibody. Uh, it is considered FC-enhanced, which means they've actually engineered the FC portion uh, so it has tighter binding to FC receptors on, say, macrophages. Now this is the first CD19 targeting um, drug for cancer. Now there actually is another, I didn't know this, there's another CD19 targeting monoclonal antibody. It's approved. It's uh, inabilizumab, which is approved for neuromyelitis optica spectrum, who are anti-aquaporin-4 antibody positive, which is something that you are probably learning for the first time as I learned for the first time preparing for this. Interestingly, uh, inabilizumab, this other CD19 antibody for this eye thing, does require hepatitis B virus serology testing and TB screening up front, which is not in the label for tafacitumab, which is a drug used for patients who have already had multiple lines of treatment for their diffuse large B cell lymphoma and are getting this drug. Perhaps only for a short period of time, so maybe not long enough to see that, but it is an accelerated approval, which means we don't, certainly we do not have the full uh, safety profile, so something to keep in mind. The toxicity seen with uh, tafacitumab, myelosuppression, infection, infusion reactions, um, now this is given with lenalidomide. So the myelosuppression, it's kind of hard to tease out how much of that is tafacitumab versus tafacitumab plus the lenalidomide, at least from the PI. Uh, the dosing here is 12 mg per kg, and these are 28-day cycles. In the first cycle, it's given uh, days 1, 4, 8, 15, 22. Cycles 2 and 3, days 1, 8, 15, 22. And then cycle 4, days 1 and 15. All right, so to, to put that a little simpler, it's twice weekly for two weeks, weekly for six weeks, and then every other week thereafter, sort of in line with what we see with things like daratumumab. Now, the pre-meds may include, in quotes from the PI, acetaminophen, an H1 receptor antagonist, H2 receptor antagonist, and or steroids. Um, now, because of the infusion reactions, initially you start at a rate of 70 mils per hour, and how much drug that is depends on the final concentration, which can be anywhere from two to eight milligrams per mil. So there'll be some, some discussions in your pharmacy departments uh, and smart pumps about how to prepare this and put this into your, your protocols and order sets and things like that. And then if they don't have a reaction in the first 30 minutes, you just increase the rate to get it done within you know one and a half or two and a half hours total. So it seems kind of simple and maybe not all that uh, scientifically elegant, uh, we, we might say. So you might get for an average patient, if I did the math right, for an average 83.3 kilogram patient, 12 mg per kg will be a gram, all right? So in the first 30 minutes, you get about 140 milligrams. And then in the next two hours, you get 80, 860 milligrams. So the way this works out is the first 30 minutes, you're getting 14% of the dose. 
and then you just increase the dose rapidly to get all the other 86% in within the next two hours is kind of how it works. Now infusion reactions were only seen in 6% mostly in cycle one and two, so it doesn't seem to be a huge thing. Now if you had to guess, this is a new approved drug, accelerated approval, you already are going to guess it's based on response rate with an N less than 100. Well, this approval is based on the L-MIND study, L-MIND. By the way, there's a B-MIND study, which is tevacidumab with bendamustine. Uh, so this was in Lancet Oncology in 2020. Uh, 81 patients total uh, with relapsed refractory disease. The overall response rate was 55%, 37% complete response, and the median duration of response was 22 months, which seems uh, impressive. Now, these were patients not eligible for transplant, so you do wonder maybe are some of these some indolent patients if that median duration of response is 22 months. Uh, from the ABSCO 19 annual median abstract where this was presented, we see the median age was 72, two lines of prior treatment. So not, I wouldn't call them heavily pretreated, moderately pretreated. Uh, 40% were rituximab refractory, which they define as progression on rituximab or within six months of rituximab, which makes me think that the other 60% could have just had rituximab or a rituximab-containing regimen, uh, more likely. Now, the inclusion criteria when you look at clinicaltrials.gov for this is patients not willing, or sorry, patients not considered in the opinion of the investigator eligible or patients unwilling to undergo intense salvage therapy, including autotransplant. So this whole not eligible for transplant definition is very, very loosey-goosey. Uh, so the question here, when this comes into practice, it comes to PNT, is for your relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell, is tafacitamide and lenalidomide better than Argemox, which uh, in Lopez uh, and colleagues in 2008, only 32 patients, but overall response rate of 43%. 34% CRE is in the same ballpark, better than just rituximab, lenalidomide. Uh, Wang and colleagues in leukemia in 2013, 45 patients, 32 that had diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Overall response rate was 33% in the same ballpark. We're more familiar with those drugs. Uh, and then long-term, is something like this, a CD19-directed antibody, better than a CD20 antibody like rituximab? Uh, those would be questions down the line to look at. But for now, another new drug that someone will write up in a monograph and send to PNT for everyone to debate. Uh, all right, the third new drug we're going to talk about is uh, blenetumab, blenetumab, uh, mofidotin, uh, brand name uh, Blenrep. And this is approved for relapsed refractory multi-myeloma in patients who have had at least four lines of prior treatment. Now, first thing to, to remember about this drug, uh, uh, it does require a REMS program that requires ophthalmologic, ophthal ophthalmology exams at baseline and before every single dose. And the dose is two and a half mg per kg every three weeks, so it, there is some time between this. So this is a uh, BCMA, which is B-cell maturation antigen. And you know where that is? That comes in as the B-cells mature, including plasma cells. So, um, so not like CD19, not like where it's kind of throughout the B-cell uh, lineage, and not like CD20, which comes in later and then leaves as the B-cells um, uh, mature to, to plasma cells. B-cell maturation antigen is still present on the plasma cells and becomes a nice target for somebody with myeloma, which of course is a disease of deranged plasma cells. So we've got this uh, blenantamab, which is a, um, a BCMA-targeting monoclonal antibody that's linked to MMAF, which is monomethyl uh, RSTAT-F. And if that sounds familiar, the mofidotin sounds like vidotin, like brintuximab vidotin. Well, that's MMAE. This is MMAF, which is a cousin of MMAE. Uh, so MMAE we know causes some thrombocytopenia, and I hope this UPS guy doesn't ring the doorbell.
going to delivery. He's going to ring the doorbell. Uh, but anyway, he's knocking. MMAF uh, has less neurotoxicity as far as peripheral neuropathy because what we uh, we don't see peripheral neuropathy anywhere in the PI for uh, for Blenrap for uh, blenatamafodotin. Now, severe thrombocytopenia, so grade three or four, so platelets less than 50 or 25 respectively, was seen in 25%. Uh, but let's talk more about the eyes, because that's the REMS program. 76% have some sort of eye toxicity, 76% have keratopathy, um, and that can include uh, the eye issues can be changes in visual acuity, double vision, dry eyes, uh, even some serious stuff like corneal ulcers. So they gotta have an eye exam with a slit lamp, so we gotta go to the, the ophthalmologist at baseline, and then at least a week after uh, that dose before the prior dose. So uh, you gotta have, they, they gotta go like, they gotta get a recurring schedule like every three weeks um, uh, while they're on, on the drug. Now the PI does state that patients should, um, should be on, oh, backing up to the, the eye doctor thing, whether it's an ophthalmologist or optometrist. The PI says ophthalmologist, but the paper, which was published uh, in Lancet Oncology in, in February of 2020, it's the DREAM M2 study, or DREAM with two Ms. In the paper, they do say that uh, if patients could not see an ophthalmologist, they could see an optometrist, which is not, uh, doesn't have that MD uh, training like an ophthalmologist does. Okay. Back to supportive care for this REMS program to prevent this eye toxicity or manage it. So they got to go see the ophthalmologist before uh, every dose. Uh, a preservative-free lubricant eye drop four times a day while on treatment is recommended. Preservative-free is stated in the PI. Um, the study talks about that they did use steroid eye drops in some patients, and they actually did a, a sub-study of 15 patients where they did like a corticosteroid eye drop in one eye and not in the other. So they did, you know, some, some due diligence to see if the steroid eye drops were effective. The fact that that uh, language about steroid eye drops does not make the PI seems to suggest it's not effective. So for now, just the preservative-free lubricant eye drops four times a day while in study. Uh, the publication also mentions that cooling masks over the eyes were used. The idea here, similar to the cool cap or cryotherapy, suck on ice chips during chemo, is that local vasoconstriction decreases drug delivery to the eyes and maybe decreases uh, eye toxicity. Uh, of course, nothing randomized to know if that works, but seems like a minimal risk thing that's worth trying. And then patients should not wear contacts with this drug without talking to their ophthalmologist first. Now, the REMS program requires the patient to be um, enrolled, the prescriber to be certified, and the institution to be certified. And this is a toxicity of MMAF. It's not the anti-BCMA uh, because we have the, the BB2121 uh, uh, anti-BCMA CAR-T product that was uh, published in the New England Medicine. Didn't see eye toxicity, but every time MMAF, this payload, when it's been added as an antibody drug conjugate, has caused this eye toxicity. So when you trade out the MMAE for MMAF as your uh, payload, you don't get the neuropathy. You still get the thrombocytopenia and some myelosuppression, but you do pick up with MMAF this eye toxicity that's going to be causing a lot of morbidity just with regards to visits to an ophthalmologist. Um, doesn't appear to be a whole lot of drug-drug interactions to worry about uh, with this drug. Uh, overall response rate is 31%, median duration of response not reached, but it's probably at least four months, maybe even six months or so. Uh, so this 31% overall response rate was based off the study, the DREAM-M, or the DREAM-2 study, uh, in 97 patients. Uh, I will have to give the investigators credit here. Uh, this is a representative sample, in my opinion, of, of heavily pretreated myeloma patients, all right? Median age, 65, okay? 74% white, 16% black. 
when I first saw it, I was like, that's a high percentage of black patients in a clinical trial. And when you go to the U.S. Census, uh, gov site, you see that in the U.S. the population breakdown by race is 74% white, 14% black. They had 16% black in this study, so this is is pretty representative uh, racially. 87% uh, of patients had a prior auto transplant. That also is representative of this myeloma patient population. 16% were ECOG2. You never see more than 1 or 2% ECOG2 in a clinical trial, and the median number of prior lines of treatment was 7 with a range of 3 to 21. There's some hardy person in this trial that had 20 or more lines of treatment, which is amazing. So, so contrast that. You know, this is a, a, a appears to be a heavily academic-focused fo study versus maybe, say, the tafacitumab study, uh, which is a little more pharmaceutical industry-focused, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, but that is uh, blenitumab, uh, mofidotin, antibody drug conjugate, and we know about those. And again, it goes without saying that this antibody drug conjugate is a microtubule inhibitor similar to MMAE. I did gloss over that. All right. Now, the last approval to talk about is uh, tizolizumab plus vimurafenib plus cobimetinib for BRAF V600 mutated metastatic melanoma. Now, this was approved July 30th based on the Inspire 150, which was presented at AACR in May 2020. I can't get over these atizolizumab folks with their Inspire in Brave. It's just I don't I don't think it sounds good. Uh, anyway, uh, Inspire, not Inspire, which is a word, but Inspire, I M S P I R E. 500 patients randomized one to one to either atizolizumab plus vimurafenib and cobimetinib, or placebo plus vimurafenib and cobimetinib for BRAF V600 mutated melanoma. Now, in the atizolizumab arm. Cycle 1 was just TKI at normal doses, and in cycle 2, they added tizolizumab and decreased the vimurafenib dose from 960 to 720 milligrams. So there is some patient counseling involved that the dose of vimurafenib in cycle 1 is different than cycle 2 if you do this combination regimen. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival. And when you're measuring or assessing progression-free survival, you can get uh, an event from either a progression event or a death. So probably mostly going to be progression. And you're going to see progression on imaging. So that can be in the eye of the beholder. So one way you kind of control for this when you set up a study is you have the investigator-assessed PFS and then an independent committee assesses PFS. Well, the investigator-assessed PFS showed a statistically significant improvement in PFS between the atizolizumab arm and placebo, 21 months versus 12.6 months, p-value 0.025. Now, the independent committee, when they looked at this, their median PFS was 16.1 months versus 12.3, which was not significant. Now, I'm just going to round this again. So the investigators said the PFS was 21 versus 12.5. The independent committee said 16 versus 12.5. So the 12.5 was the same between the two. But the investigators were a little overconfident are a little hopeful in the atizolizumab investigator. Um, and these PFS curves, uh, the PFS curves perfectly overlap for at least seven months, and then you start to see some modest divergence. Uh, the overall response rate similar. However, the duration of response median was longer in the atizolizumab group, 20 months versus 12 months, which if it were true, that would be a difference. Uh, however, what we really would like to see is does this improve overall survival, of course? And the overall survival is immature, capital I-M, then mature. Um, the median OS was 28 months versus 25 months, which I'm sure they don't give you the p-value, but that's not significant. Um, don't know that it will be. And of course, the question you got to ask here is we're looking at the first progression event in metastatic melanoma. We want to see overall survival. But then also, if you do immunotherapy, 
plus uh, BRAF and MEK inhibitor together, what does that group get at progression? Ippy? Ippy plus Nevo? Um, you know, there's there's nothing left after progression, and we'd like to see the TKI, the TKI alone group. What are they getting at progression, right? Assuming they're going to get immunotherapy in some way. So you really w- would like to see uh, the mature overall survival data before you would haul off and maybe try a triplet regimen like this in metastatic melanoma. I will say it doesn't appear to be that much more toxic. Uh, again, they're doing that lower vimurafenib go lower vimurafenib dose when they added tizlizumab, which uh, I think is wise considering the history of vimurafenib when it's combined with immunotherapy. Just as a uh, historical point, uh, vimurafenib plus, I, th- I think it was ipilimumab, uh, yeah, it was ipi, I think, with vimurafenib was studied in mestac melanoma, and there was a phase one study that, if I recall, was stopped early due to hepatotoxicity. Uh, as you see that with vimurafenib and with ipilimumab, and you do see a little bit more, say like LFT abnormalities go from like 10 to 16 percent when you add a tizzo or somewhere in there, so a little bit more, but but not a huge increase in uh, in toxicity. Uh, and this is a large study, 500 patients, but doesn't answer the question that we really want to have answered, which is does it approve overall survival? So apologies for the UPS guy interrupting us twice, um, but thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib, follow the podcast uh, at AquafarmPod, both on Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.